One question I get all the time is, Ben, how can I break into working in basketball? Or what are the best ways for me to deeper my understanding of the NBA? And my immediate answer is always sports business classroom. That is the good stuff. Two of our Thinking Basketball team members are actually SBC grads. And it's an immersive program that takes place inside Summer League in Las Vegas, where you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, Zach Lowe, and more. This year's session runs from July 10th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL at sign up and get $300 off. That's Thinking Basketball for $300 off. If you're interested, check it out today, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode, Game 1 of the NBA Finals. That's what we're going to talk about today. Cody, have you ever thought about how difficult it is to calculate? You know when you look at, you hear these stats about pick and roll? From like synergy, synergy pick and roll. He's in the 98th percentile. So second spectrum pick and roll, 1.17 direct points. Per, you know these stats? Yeah, that's a great point. Because like with video, is it just like these two dots came together and then they stood for a second. So that's going to be a pick and roll. So I've, Have I've, you ever thought about how difficult it is to calculate this? Like yeah. what happens if there's two screens on the play? Yeah, that's a, that's what, a great point. Okay, what happens if there's a foul on the play and it's side out? Yeah, you're blowing my mind now, Ben. Okay, what a, so you can have three screens on a play that ends in a foul. What if you have a pick and roll and then you miss the shot and then because of the pick and roll, someone busts free for a dunk on the putback? Ben, Does I'm, that still count on as- I'm on your first question still. You're, this, is, this is too much right now. This is too much. <laughs> okay, so the reason why I ask this is because you see these stats floating around about pick and roll and as longtime listeners and followers of Thinking Basketball, thank you so much, by the way, for... Um, sticking with us over the years because they know that I have a propensity to hand track things. And now that we're in the NBA finals and there's only one series going on, I busted out a little hand tracking. Cody, I looked at all of the possessions with a Steph Curry pick and roll in game one. And there were, there were times when there was one screen on a play, two screens on a play, stagger screen, a rescreen, a ghost screen. I don't know how these other entities are counting what counts as a pick and roll, what doesn't, how you do the how do you do the math? Do you say it was twenty one unique possessions? There were there were twenty six possessions in the game with a Steph Curry pick and roll. But some of those had multiple screens for Curry. And then on those twenty six possessions, a couple of them were like deflected balls out of bounds for a side out. A couple of them were Foul draw, you know, fouls that were whistled, but they weren't in the bonus. Some of them were fouls that were whistled. They were in the bonus. Do you count that as free throws toward the pick and roll? I don't know how to do it. I have a question for you now, since you since you're the one that's been in this headspace for a little bit. Did you count literally any possession where Curry was dribbling and someone set a screen for him, regardless of what happened afterwards? Any possession where that happened? Exactly. Yeah. 
did you keep track of like who set the screen what happened after each one of those actions or did you just like take track of numbers and like points per possession I have what happened afterwards I have the result of the play I got some points I did not keep track of the screener in this case um partially because I have most of these plays memorized at this point I I <laughs> I've seen the game a, a couple times and then you do a video on the game and things like that but here's the takeaway 21 I would call it 21 unique possessions to score meaning there were 26 possessions with a curry ball screen but we've got some side outs and fouls and I don't know how to handle that. I don't know how to handle that. Four turnovers on those possessions. Most of them were in the first half. Um, actually, all of them were before the 930 mark of the third quarter. We had some second chance points earlier in the game. They got four free throws. Here's my bottom line. I would say they had 21 unique possessions to end a play. You know, that wasn't like a side out of bounds or a foul or something like that. 21 unique possessions. And... They got 17 immediate points on the pick and roll. They got two threes off offensive rebounds. We remember, I think in the video I put out on the game, there's that early one where Rob Williams is in drop. Curry pulls up with a wide open three, misses it off the front rim. It comes right back to him. He reloads. He hits that one. So they had two threes like that. And then the free throws, what do you do with free throws? Do you count the fact that Draymond Green on a Curry pick and roll late in the game got an open shot under the basket he was fouled from behind he missed both free throws or do you give him like his expected points as a 70 percent free throw shooter I don't know the answer to these things I don't know how other sites are doing it all I know is I use the expected points for free throws and if you add that all up you get a 125 offensive rating on the curry unique pick and roll possession so you know I thought they had success with that I thought the offense in this game for Golden State for most of the game really stressed the Celtics defense in a way that we basically haven't seen since they made the Derek White trade and become became an impenetrable Borg defense system. Um, but yeah, there's a ton we can talk about in this game. That was my first thought. The, the Warriors had a lot of offensive success for most of the night. I'm glad you started the Warriors pick and roll because I feel like this is this is almost the the most fertile ground for discussion in this in this game. And the first thing that I go to is when I hear that high offensive rating, the 125 on those pick and rolls. Uh, the prevailing discourse seems to be at least, especially during the first three quarters, was that Boston for some dumb reason, quoting everyone ever out there, dropped on a lot of them. Rob was dropping. Horford dropped on a couple. He started hedging a little bit more later. Tice, when he was in there, dropped. How much would you attribute it to Boston trying to drop against uh, the Curry pick and roll? I don't want to uh, sound like I'm subtweeting anyone because I, I, I'm really not intending to. But it is fascinating when there's only one game sometimes to see different interpretations of different things. And I know there's a lot of talk about the Celtics adjustments, there was a lot of people in the video comments like, what, you, you made the wrong video. And it's like, to me, I don't see what you're seeing because I don't think the Celtics want Rob up at the same level of the screen as they do Al Horford. In fact, uh, that's why they try to pre-switch to bring Horford up to the screening action. It's an awesome song and dance that they have going on behind the play. Like Rob Williams, whoever he's guarding, the Warriors are like, go go put him in a screen. They're like literally attacking Rob Williams to pull him away from the basket and stretch, stretch him out onto Curry. And in fact, one of the plays in the fourth quarter ended up in a switch. Do you remember this play? 
Rob is the only big on the court. The Celtics had switched to that small ball lineup. We can talk about that in a second. Rob comes way out high. Curry gets the switch, isolates 16-footer jumper is good. He he loves that. We've seen him do that for years, getting that switch onto the big man. So I don't think the Celtics want that. So when Horford was on the floor earlier in the game, they had him pre-switch. So Rob's guarding Wiggins. Curry's like, Wiggins, bring up Rob. Wiggins goes to set the screen. Al Horford just sprints away from his own man, wherever he is, and Rob just goes and switches back to Horford's man. So I thought it was less about these major adjustments throughout the game and more about Horford can play a different coverage up at the screen than Rob Williams. When the Celtics dropped anyway, they want a very high drop. There was that awesome soundbite with Marcus Smart where he's like, this isn't the heat anymore. And he basically walks through the technique, um, I guess, which was okay to air because it's so obvious at this point to everyone. But, you know, the idea is the Celtics want to chase and push Curry downhill, pressure him from behind, and then have the big man be pretty high. Like we saw Brooke Lopez in this position last series, like get up out at the three-point line and then drop with the ball defender pushing Curry downhill in rearview pursuit so he can't get a comfortable look. Be interesting to see if they stay with that. Um, I thought it was fairly successful, but as we've talked about, this is a rock and a hard place with this series where you have an elite defense and an elite offense. And so, you know, how, how do we define successful? It's got to be curved on both sides. The the buzzword, the key word that I think you said there, especially with their drop defense, is chase. Because I think this is something that got lost in the sauce a little bit, is sure, like when you think of a traditional drop, it's like you're not literally just giving the player a three-point shot. It's not like the player drops and they're like, please take a three-point shot, especially against Steph Curry. No, the point, and a few times, like they executed it well. Like there's one time I think Smart chased after him, might have been White, I don't remember, but, but Rob drops again him and he gets like a 15 foot floater which is a pretty tough shot when you have a chaser but that chaser is really close to him right like he's making it difficult for curry to still pull up and take that shot and white and smart are two of the what like two of the 10 best players in the league to execute that sort of defensive system so i don't necessarily think like people can't be like udoka are you an idiot you can't drop against curry well you can drop against curry once in a while if you have a guy like smart or white that knows how to chase so uh, so well and you see that with drew holiday with the bucks too not to bring up the the bucks in in like a character you're making kind everything of about the bucks making That's... everything about the bucks but when when you're that close behind a player you can execute that sort of thing and i think again with the rob point not only is he not quite as quick when you get him to the level of the screen, but he had a couple of plays, too, where I think Curry gets past White, gets to the rim. I think White forces him to go up and under to uh, score on the other side, and Rob comes over for his patented help block. And I think that's another push and pull is you have a strength of Rob, which is to be off ball, which, I mean, away from the action, coming in for his help blocks, but you also don't have him trying to play up to the level of the screen. So that's an interesting thing is keeping someone away from their weaknesses and towards their strengths. Yeah, it's uh, not quite the same sort of Rob Williams series, if you will, that we saw, say, against Milwaukee, I think because of that. Like, his his ability to erase mistakes off Golden State's movement is a strength for him and for the Celtics defense when he's out there. On the flip side, with him, he, he's on Wiggins ostensibly to avoid the screening action. He doesn't want to be on Draymond because Draymond will just keep pulling him up high. Uh, Draymond's a very quick, you know, dynamic ball handler anyway. So they put him on Wiggins. And then in addition to uh, 
Golden State saying, hey, we'll, we'll add Wiggins into the ball screening action. The other thing that's happening is if Wiggins goes and stands on the wing, he effectively pulls Rob out of the paint because he's too good of a shooter. You know, you are a whatever it is, 39, 40% three-point shooter with a lot of above-the-break threes. And we saw it on two different plays where it's a problem for the Celtics. One of them early in the game, Rob helps down. Easy kick out, wide open practice shot for Wiggins. Um, When he doesn't help down, then you get all that extra space in the paint to attack. So it'll be an interesting thing. I thought a huge win for the Celtics on the lineups front was that we talked about Derek White having a good series. We know Marcus Smart is one of the guys that, I mean, as versatile as a guard defender as we've maybe ever had in the history of the league. Jalen Brown, his off-ball awareness, we saw some breakdowns early in the first half from him, but he did a very good job staying connected and chasing Clay Thompson around screens. And then you add one more guy for the Celtics. I thought this was their biggest win on this front, Peyton Pritchard. Peyton Pritchard's defensive minutes were very successful. He was able to stay connected to Poole. He was able to keep the ball in front of him against both Poole and in the fourth quarter on a key possession against Curry. So if he can not only kind of survive and give you that small ball lineup that Celtics had the huge run with, give you that spacing and shooting, just massively dangerous uh, corner three-point shooter to spread the floor, but then on defense, instead of being a weakness, he's someone that helps you against all these lineups where they're like, hey, we're going to have Curry and Clay and Poole, and you got to stay connected to these guys. Um, I thought that was a big win for them in game one. I agree, and it goes back to, again, the key word being chase, because that's something that the Boston defenders are going to have to do a lot during this series, is just chase people all over the place. I also want to bring it back to that uh, aforementioned Rob play where he helps off Wiggins. Wiggins gets the the corner three just to show the complexity and the push pull of trying to defend a pick and roll. Like, sure, when you when you bring up an idea of a drop, you think about Curry pulling up and hitting the three like we saw a few times. But when we hear about the hard hedge, the counter that the Warriors had is you bring Draymond up, you bring Iguodala did it once or twice. When you hard hedge like that, they slip the screen, right? And Draymond is so good at, it's probably illegal. It's more than likely illegal, but getting his hands into uh, the defender, pushing off and getting himself going into space, Curry hits him with that quick pocket pass and you have that patented four on three defense. And Draymond, I think he got the corner three for Wiggins. He got, I think, uh, a layup or I think he got a dunk for Iguodala. I think later in the game, Iguodala got a layup for Draymond in that situation. So it's not just as easy as like, you can't just drop against these guys. I think you have to mix it up because the Warriors are so good at all these counters and it depends on the personnel out there for how they're going to handle it. Yeah, and and I agree completely. It's a great point because in the fourth, when they switched to one big, you know, the Warriors had a bunch of fumbled possessions. They had some key turnovers. They only scored 13 points before in the period before they kind of uh, waved the white flag, but they did kind of have a good offensive process going. And I thought the short roll was part of that, where you end up with like, we only have one big Horford's involved in the pick and roll. The second you kind of move two guys towards Curry, you open up that short roll game. Flip side is an issue for Golden State for me coming out of that was these lineups with multiple non-shooters. The Celtics are just playing them perfectly. And it's like, okay, uh, Andre Iguodala above the break three or Draymond Green corner three. We will take that all day. If we're the Celtics, that's not going to be very efficient offense. The Warriors know that. And you end up with a couple short roll possessions in the fourth quarter where it's like, 
Defense collapses. You get your downhill action. No one wants to shoot at the rim, and they just leave Green and Iguodala behind the arc. I, I mean, they could set up a camping site if they wanted to. Like, no one is going to bother them. No one cares about them standing behind the line. So I, I think they're going to need, even if it's Gary Payton coming back, we, we still kind of don't know what's going on with him. But when he's in the corner and you leave him that wide open, as we've talked about this season, he'll make a couple of those at a decent percentage. Draymond took more threes than he wanted to in that game because he had some hot potatoes at the end of the clock. But you don't want your action to end up with a Draymond corner three. And I think uh, that's an adjustment that we're probably going to see the Warriors. I mean, you want to talk about strengths and weaknesses. They're going to have to figure out this whole thing with Jordan Poole, who is being attacked defensively. And then offensively, it doesn't look like a Jordan Poole series. He's got to be better than he was in game one at creating advantages when he's out there, or else he's just not adding any offensive oomph to counterbalance what's happening on defense. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Well, let me go back to Iguodala and Draymond, because I want to ask you a question about this. Because the whole point of, like, playing small ball, the whole point of playing, like, a skill ball lineup is that, A, you're able to get more spacing than a traditional lineup that would have some bigs. B, you're a lot switchier, so you can play a lot more defense. Obviously, that works really well when you have Draymond and Iggy. But offensively, especially, I guess even defensively, because of some of the offensive rebounds they gave up in that fourth quarter, too, do you think right now how they played the Draymond Iguodala small ball lineups are tenable in this series? Um, I feel like the answer is mostly no. I, I'm not saying we'll never see that combination again. We might. It might have some success depending on who the Celtics have out there and, and what time of game it is. But based on what I saw in the first game, um, uh, Mo, Mo DeKeel of Nerdershi wrote before the playoffs, we were, we were discussing the Warriors and the Nuggets. And I was saying, you know, I like all their veteran options off the bench. And he said, Iguodala is very dusty. He's very dusty, Ben. He's, he's been collecting dust for a while. And it's like, that's what it felt like in game one with another month and a half of the playoffs going by and he hadn't played. It'll be interesting to see if he can kind of turn the corner and look better because I think based on how he played, uh, even if you take a little of the rust off, to your point, Cody, I'm not sure how tenable those lineups are with Iguodala and Green from an offensive perspective. And, you know, we'll have to see because I'm trying to pull it up right now. When's the last time we actually saw Iguodala play a game? It looks like he played He played a little a while bit. Ago. It's, been, it's been a while. So yeah. I think we're going to have to assume, just assume that he's going to do better. I think the key... The key play, not even the fact that he wasn't looking at the basket half the time when he got it with with 18 feet of space in front of him, but he had this drive that, once again, once again, a Rob Williams special where he drives in, and Rob kind of helps over for a second. Wig, uh, Wiggins, Iguodala throws this wild kickout pass that I think it ends up being a turnover. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm going to have to assume that Iguodala is going to play better. But, you know, we saw Draymond struggle a lot offensively. We saw Wiggins struggle a lot offensively. But defensively... 
I thought they were interesting. I thought Iguodala looked interesting defensively. He was getting into the passing lanes. He was making uh, he was making life a little bit more difficult for the Celtics. So I think that is going to be a really interesting trade-off. But going to Jordan Poole, especially if Curry's going to be going off like he was going off, how, how does Poole kind of slot into their lineup, in your opinion? Because to me, Jordan Poole kind of feels like a, a second guy that can cook out there, that you can give the ball, that can kind of dance a little bit, get into his own rhythm. But if Curry's going to be the main man running the show, is Poole just going to be playing like a proto-Clay sort of role? And if that's the case, I don't know if that gets the full value out of him because I think his full value comes from being able to dance and, and create a little bit on his own. I think he's going to have more on-ball or primary opportunities when Curry's on the bench for whatever that is, like 8 to eight to 13 minutes a game or something. But when he's out there, I mean, the movement is still the thing. And having multiple guys that can attack. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, one of my notes coming out of the game is that Curry in game one was still content to basically remove his defender from the play when he was face guarded. So the Celtics kind of came out in the first quarter and didn't give Curry his normal special attention. Um, it wasn't that they weren't prepared to play Curry from the, from the opening tip, you know, bigs are jumping out onto him and everyone knows he's out there and he's a great shooter, but so many teams come into game one against golden state. What we normally see is basically a freak out about guarding Curry and his teammates will get layups because of it. Two guys will jump to him. There'll be a miscommunication. Draymond makes a backdoor cut to the screener layup. That's usually what we see. In the first quarter of this game, we saw the opposite. We saw the Celtics kind of forget that Curry needs special rules, right? And so I, I mentioned this in the video. I won't rehash it here. But they tightened up a little bit after that in the second quarter. And they started basically face guarding him, meaning whoever's on him outside on the wing or whatever doesn't care about anything happening away from the ball. They're staring right at Curry. They're trying to have a poetry jam session with him. You know, it's like some one-on-one -on -one time, okay? And, and Steph has done this before. He's, he's happy to basically remove that defender from the play by standing in the corner or something and acting like, ah, the screen may be coming, I may be, but he's not moving. He's just staying there. Those four-on-four -four possessions, Cody, if it's, you know, when the starters were out there, if it's like Looney, Draymond, Clay Thompson, and Wiggins, it's a lot easier to score with all that space in four-on-four -four than five-on-five -five when you remove a player. So I think Curry is happy to do that at times. But the Warriors need someone that can do something. None of those guys can do anything on a ball screen. And if they're not careful and their cuts and their spacings aren't, their spacing isn't working, and there's 12 seconds on the shot clock, it's kind of hard for them to get anything better. I think once or twice on plays like that where Curry just eliminated his defender, Clay Thompson ended up with one of those little one-legged fadeaway shots. He may have made one and missed one or two. I think that's where Poole comes in, right? If he's going to be out there, you are going to have another guy you have to chase, another three-point shooter at the end of the line where it's like you collapse on the Curry pick and roll. Now it's not Draymond Green in the corner. It's Jordan Poole. He's got to do that and the on-ball stuff. So I think it's all of the above as um, value that he has to add when he's out there on the court. To your point about the 
the sort of four on four ball that they would play. I think some people might might call back to Wiggins and be like, but wait a second, wait a second. Wiggins had that nice play where the, the offense got a little bogged down and he hit a nice little step back mid. But then you have to remember, like, those are the exact kinds of plays that we've been criticizing Wiggins for. Like, that was the bulk of his offense. And we don't want, like, the Warriors don't want Wiggins to lead an offense with that kind of thing. When we're thinking about stirring the drink, like, neither Clay nor Wiggins are truly forcing rotations and beginning the, like, crazy movement that the Warriors usually give. And I think well, Clay also doesn't quite have the blow-by speeds that I'm used to seeing from him. I think neither of them, though, really you want operating in pick-and-roll decision-making. Even the Wiggins shots you're talking about, they don't mind sprinkling that in here and there. You know, a couple of them were against Rob Williams and basically saying, like, well, if you're going to give me my little 17-footer, I'm going to take it. I think they're okay with that. It adds rhythm and pace and diversity. What they don't want is the offense resets, and now you're like seven seconds left, 35 feet away, Clay or Wiggins, go make something really good happen because you're not going to end up with something really good. They're not often going to run a lot of on ball pick and roll action with those guys. And even the isolation, as you said, a 15 footer at the end of the clock, maybe that's okay, but you don't want a steady diet of that. So um, the other thing on this side of the ball for me was watching some of the Celtics who struggled, specifically Jason Tatum, navigating screens and moving around. If the earlier series were perfect series for Tatum's defensive strengths, size against big wings, um, isolation defense closer to the basket, so we can use that size, helping at the nail against stationary set pieces, like what Brooklyn runs or loading up on Giannis, and then a little of that weak side shot blocking that you've mentioned throughout the season. That, to me, is Tatum at his defensive best. Tatum's defensive weaknesses are screen navigation and chasing little guys 30 feet away. Like, Tatum's a huge dude. He's like a good 6'8 and very broad. And I thought his foot, foot speed was exposed in this game. He got blown by multiple times. I want to say three or four times, which is very, very high for a single game to have clear blow-bys and a number of possessions where he got stuck on screens. And that makes a big difference if you get switched onto Curry, and then they run that high Curry pick and roll with the high Celtics drop. Because as the big man comes and catches Curry, as he meets Curry outside the line, he wants to backpedal. And if Tatum's stuck on that screen for an extra second or two, that's where you get the wide open three, or you get a lot of space for Curry to cook because there's no pressure coming from behind. So... Interesting, you know, we mentioned Rob Williams, maybe this not being an ideal series for him because of the way the Warriors played. I thought Rob and Tatum really looked uh, like they struggled with the Warriors movement. That's something for me to watch going forward. Uh, this, this leads to a question again that I have for you here. So I've been dubbing the Warriors offense as like the DHO sprint offense, the, the dribble handoff sprint offense. And there's so many plays, especially from Poole and, and Curry. And I, you, you see it from Clay, but again, Clay's foot speed is just not quite as, as much as Curry or Poole, where they'll kind of like pass the ball off or they'll be hanging around. And all of a sudden they sprint. They sprint to the guy with the ball. Uh, they get a DHO and then mass chaos happens. And they do that so often that when I'm watching that in real time, when I'm watching the game, I'm like, how do you perceive it quickly enough as a defender to appropriately react to it? And how do you do that, especially across a seven-game series? So my question is, is we, we talk a lot about pick-and-roll coverage in defense, but Ben, what is an appropriate like sprint dribble handoff defense that the Celtics should have, especially when a lot of their defenders are these 
I, I guess, slower-footed bigs who are better at guarding bigger forwards. Well, I think that the sprinting into actions can create an advantage, period, because one, you're sprinting, and two, the screening rules help you, and three, you know what's coming before the defender. In my off-ball video a couple years ago, I talked about the fact that it's easier to basically make moves like you're playing soccer or wide receiver in football without dribbling than when you're dribbling. So if you're not dribbling and you can all of a sudden cut and run and sprint into a screen and that screening advantage, that DHO gives you an edge, it's it's a thing that's extremely difficult to combat by design. That's part of what makes cutting and moving so powerful in basketball. On the flip side, as much as there were times when the Celtics struggled a little bit with the Warriors' general movement, sprinting, cross matches were an issue. When we get to the other side of the ball, we'll talk about that. Um, they had some picture-perfect switches because they're so good at practicing it because they know on side out of bounds where guys are supposed to be and what the switching concepts are. And so I don't think there's got to be at least three or four on the near side that come to mind where you've got these DHO actions, and I don't think you can switch them better. Like, like if you watch Market Smart's technique on switches, when he knows there's going to be a switch – He's basically, what they're doing is basically saying like, we're in position to take away the slip. We're also in position to take away the handoff. And so you're going to have to do something brilliant to create an advantage on that action. Again, it's the beauty of this series. I mean, somehow we're like half an hour into this episode. We haven't talked about how awesome was game one, Cody. Cody, like game one to me, I give it nine out of 10 gold blooms. How many gold blooms do you get? Nine out of 10. Nine out of 10. Wow. Um... I think I I mean maybe like the ending fourth quarter is really cool to see a team go on a run like that but I think if you're going to get in that upper echelon I need to see a closer ending than that. So I'm I'm probably that's, capping it like an 8. Yeah, that's my 10 a 10 out of 10 if it had a if it had a dynamic ending at the end. Um yeah, it was it was an awesome it was an awesome game. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Celtics small ball line. I mean, I don't know how much of the discussion has been about their their shooting luck. Obviously, they got very hot. To hit seven or eight straight threes in a quarter is absolutely insane. Um, Al Horford now shooting something like forty six percent from three in the playoffs after being you know thirty three, thirty five percent mid thirties for a very long time. It it's unbelievable. It's really weird, Cody, to say that during a stretch. If this team shot 38% from three, which would be three of eight, they would have lost the game, right? But they went eight for eight. 
So they put 15 extra points on the board, and it messes with our brains. Like some of the some of the reactions coming out of Game One, I thought we had a couple wins for Boston, a couple wins for Golden State. We've talked about a lot of them on one side of the ball, and it was a very competitive game. The Warriors' offensive rating through the first three quarters was like 128. Uh, it's not normal, folks, for Al Horford to just sprint down the floor and swish threes repeatedly on possessions. It's awesome to watch, but. Uh, you know, it's not normal. And that doesn't mean the Celtics won per se because they like had a hot shooting game. The sh- I thought the shot quality and the dynamics back and forth were very competitive. But again, that was my takeaway from the game. Like, this is really competitive. I don't know how much I'm changing how I feel about the series, which I thought was like a coin flip, other than the fact that the Celtics now only have three to win and the Warriors still have four to win. I don't know what to make of that fourth quarter, Ben. I still don't. Like, I was... I thought I was like, you know, galaxy braining it. I was watching them like, actually, the reason the Celtics are on a run right now is because of their their driving ability. Jalen Brown is getting into the paint and making these kickouts. And then just like, tough three, tough three, tough three. I'm like, okay, maybe it's not all about the the paint touches. But beyond that, like, I thought Golden State stagnated. Like, there's a there's a play. I think it's like three and a half minutes left, four minutes left in the game where the Warriors are just like, Curry tries to isolate. Nothing happens. He kicks to like Poole, tries to isolate. Nothing happens. Kicks to Clay. Tries to isolate. Nothing happens. Wiggins or Draymond. I don't remember who. Somebody who ends up forcing up a tough three. So there was like a, a confluence of these events where Golden State's offense just kind of fell apart. Boston was getting into the paint well. I thought Jalen Brown did a really good job of getting by his his man, getting into the paint, getting some fouls, kicking it out. I think, uh, I think I heard that he had all of his assists in that fourth quarter, and that definitely stood out with his drives. So I, I don't know. What, what do you make of, of that fourth quarter? I, I think it was the best quarter I've ever seen Jalen Brown play. And Jalen Brown can get on heaters. So he's certainly had some quarters where he's had like 25 points and just crushed teams with pure scoring. But I thought the playmaking and his ability to get into the paint, touch the paint, and kick it out and get a wide-open shot was huge. He also had the lob pass to Rob Williams, which is not something you see Jalen Brown throw all the time. And he combined that with, hey, I'm like maybe the best mid-range tough shot maker on this team, especially against shorter players that I can rise up over. That's really high-level basketball when you get to a championship series to say, couple key possessions in the fourth quarter, go get me a 50% ISO jumper deep in the paint. You know, he makes a three. And then the Celtics are drunk with dad power. Just Derek White just just reining in threes with, you know, the 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 newborn sorcery that he has going on. Um, I thought it was a little both. I thought it was some hot shooting, but I also thought the Warriors maybe overhelped a little bit. It's it's a fascinating thing. They shrink the floor and they know their personnel. And so they're going to say, hey, Derek White, maybe even Al Horford, although please not from the th- uh, the corner. It's a little better above the break. We'll give you guys semi-contested, closeout shot. We'll, we'll give you that if that's what we have to do to make sure that you don't get layups, free throws, easy stuff near the rim, lobs to the dunker spot, things like that. I wonder how much that changes. Do you do you stick to your guns, which I think is mathematically probably the right thing to do, and say, we're going to play the same way. We're going to give you the same shots. Some of them will be wide open. We know that. Um, and you make 35% of them and whatever, we all go home. And then, you know, there's tweets from shot quality about like how maybe the Celtics should have actually made more. It's like, no, this is a bet that the Warriors have been making and cashing in on for most of the season. 
and they're not exactly playing the 2017 Warriors. It's like the Celtics aren't a great outside shooting team. They're a good enough outside shooting team that they have guys and they'll punish you with volume. We've seen them have tons of games in this series where it's like, eh, and this uh, season, excuse me, this playoffs, where it's like, oh, Marcus Smart. I don't really mind him. He's only like a 34 or 35% three-point shooter. Yeah, but he's crazy. He'll take like 16 of them <laughs> without even worry. He'll be like, ah, I got five or six in the bag. It's no big deal. So it's going, that's another thing going into game two and moving forward in the series. Do you kind of react and say, ah, we got to play straight up in the paint more. We have to be a little less quick to help um, in spots and we got to trust our guys to survive on an island that might lead to more free throws, but we take away threes or something like that. I don't know. I don't think I would do it, but that was my big takeaway, uh, especially after that fourth quarter and that small ball lineup. I thought about this a lot because it seemed like the Warriors were more okay giving up the courier pool switch on to Tatum a little bit more, which is a switch like when, when you see the height difference and whatever else you're like, okay, this is clearly not something you want to do. But ultimately, I, I kind of thought it worked and I thought they almost shot themselves in the foot. When they helped off so much, when like Curry gets gets on Tatum, Tatum is is posting in the mid post area, and then other players are stunting a little bit towards him, and I think they got into trouble with getting the Celtics were able to kick it out and get some good looks from that. I almost think they should leave him on an island a little bit more there because I think Tatum is better isolating from the perimeter than he is isolating from the mid post, and I know he's really good at making some tough shots, but I think those are the tough shots that the Warriors ultimately should be okay uh, with him taking. What do you think about that? I, they they want to avoid the deep post catches from just strength. So Curry uh, against both Tatum and in the first half, Brown had a seal for a layup. They want to avoid that. Like six feet under the basket, you've got these massive size advantages. Um, the Celtics play really big. Like Marcus Smart is a huge 6'3". Jalen Brown is a big, strong 6'6". Jason Tatum is the biggest 6'8 player, I, th- I think, ever. Like, why is he so big? Um <laughs> <laughs> the the pool situation, they went to zone a couple times to try to protect it. Like Curry and Pool, at least in the fourth quarter, it felt like Golden State almost had their pants down or something. They were like, oh no, we got we have two we have two guys we need to protect. What do we do? And to your point, I think they're okay, especially with Curry switches if it's not deep, because Curry's actually a solid man defender and he's a pretty strong dude himself and he can hold up he's he's done that repeatedly but pool I think they're a little bit more concerned about and in fact one of the plays in the comeback in the video in a half court set is uh pool staying with I think Brown until the very end of the play and then he does the very Jordan pool thing which is like trip over himself and fall almost out of bounds and Draymond kind of sees it coming at the last second and Draymond's like Oh no, Jalen will slam on the brakes and he'll have a wide open five foot little push shot. And so he comes over to help, alters the shot, Brown misses it, Rob Williams put back dunk, right? So I think that's what they're they're trying to do there to protect those guys. Another thought on the Celtics offense for me, especially late in the game, is pace and transition and defense to offense and how they were able to use that to their advantage, especially with Kevon Looney out there. Horford's just like, I'm going to out-sprint you. I'm going to run down the court and create little advantages. Peyton Pritchard had a couple big plays where sprinting down court occupied a defender, and there was one on that out-of-bounds pass. I think it was that out-of-bounds pass where they drew up a play. 
It was a beautiful play. Looney was going to slip to the basket. He probably would have had a layup. Draymond sees it, goes to, goes to make the pass. Al Horford deflects it. And then Curry is in the corner and Peyton Pritchard's on him. And Curry doesn't sprint and Peyton Pritchard does. And he just sprints right down the court. Jalen catches it, hit ahead for the layup. All of that transition pace defense to offense stuff, I thought really helped Boston when they had the one big lineup. Uh, and and again, you know, how does Golden State counter that specifically? This is this team is the king of small ball with Draymond. I think they have to find the right ingredient going forward. Ooh, I'm going to put a pin in that for like 30 seconds. But I I don't want to be super galaxy brain about this. Obviously, the fourth quarter was the was the moment that the game shifted. But I did think there was another mini moment at the end of that third quarter where it looked like the Warriors were about to blow it open. And because of them pushing the pace, that, that, that was something that I definitely marked. Like the Celtics started pushing it up a little bit more and they got a couple of good looking threes. And I think both White and Horford directly responded to another Warriors three. And I'm like, wow, if they missed either of those or they missed both of those the Warriors blow this game wide open and I don't think they recover from that so I think that was a really key part but going back to the Golden State Warriors defense because this is this is something that I heard from a couple of different areas lurking around the Twitter sphere um it sounded like people some people weren't impressed with Draymond defensively what, what do you think about that take how did you feel about Draymond's defensive ability during game one I thought uh Obviously, the offense was a titanic struggle. Yes, um, just too many turnovers and not doing not not able to impact the game in the little ways that he normally does without scoring. Defensively, it wasn't his best game. Um, I would not call it. Here, here's the thing: you grade on a scale. Like this guy's the best defensive player of the of the decade. Maybe did he have his best defensive game? Absolutely not. Did he have moments where he tried a trick and it didn't work or he went into no man's land. I mean, speaking of tricks that didn't work, that foul late in the game where he pulled the jersey of Tatum when Curry was coming down. I think Curry was going to have a layup and Draymond just gave him a little extra, you know, ooh, the little. I'm, I'm just going to casually pull you out of the way and no one will notice. Um, we should have a grifting award for the finals. Uh, Jimmy Butler had a good one in the Eastern Conference Finals. I don't remember who got the layup, but he just kind of like stopped and stopped someone in transition for it, for a lot in of Miami. Yeah, the yeah. game in Miami. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but defensively, you got to remember he's communicating extensively. The Celtics want to avoid him at times. He had a ton of help possessions that were plenty good, plenty effective. Um, I think he got his hands on a couple balls, deflections or steals. I don't have the box score in front of me right now, but even like he switched on to Jalen Brown. And I have this possession in the video on thinking basketball YouTube channel as well. And Brown hits a step back over him. One, it was a, it was a carrying violation. They called the carrying violation earlier in the game on Jordan Poole on the same part side of the court, but on the very same play, they didn't call it on Brown. I thought that was perfectly fine defense. I think the warriors will live with the Celtics getting their big wings switched on to Draymond Green in isolation for the rest of the series. If they could get that every possession, I think they would take it. While we're here, we should also acknowledge, I thought that was a wonderfully officiated game. I just love the flow, um, the sort of concept of like allowing a little contact around the basket consistently both ways. It looked like the players were able to adapt to what felt legal. There was no real grifting 
going on throughout the night. So you didn't have 80 fouls and controversial things. And you did not have a rock and a hard place moment. You did not have Tatum just going, well, I can't get by anyone. I'm just going to put my shoulder down and flail my arms and fly to the floor and scream. And then I'm going to put the onus on you to blow the whistle. We may see that later in the series. But I just want to acknowledge that because refs will miss calls here and there. But you can live with them missing calls here and there. At least I can. That's just part of the game that are like, ah, you didn't see the little slap on the wrist or you missed the three steps. That happens. But the concept of the way they officiated the game, the flow, a little bit more freedom of contact, I I thought it made for a a splendid game. It's kind of like watching the weather, Ben. Like, I I can think of a play right now. Like, Curry drove in, and it was the angriest I've seen Curry in a while since he threw the mouthpiece. The one one where he gets slapped on the... Yeah, Horford. Yeah, he got really hacked on that play. That was one of the few uh, missed calls, I think, that... I was like, no one saw that. That was that looked pretty clear on TV. Yeah, so you you might remember that one, just like you might remember when you're watching the weather and they're like, it's not going to rain on Tuesday, and then it pours all day Tuesday. But you have to remember the other ten days were were relatively accurate. So I think you're right. Like maybe the egregious one thing happened, but overall, I agree with you. There wasn't there wasn't a time where I'm like, all right, this is turning into ref ball now. Ref <laughs> ref ball. Um, any other thoughts on that? I think we've covered most of the things that I kind of wanted to get to. I mean, I'm definitely fascinated to see if Gary Payton the second can play going forward. Many of you listening to this will already uh, have seen game two. We'll, we'll come back. Um, I think we'll come back at some point and try to do a podcast on game two. That's the goal to be able to sort of catalog and capture reactions of each game. Of course, I, I got to go make a video first. So sometimes it takes a little time to get to the podcast, but do you have anything else that jumped out to you. I know you covered this game with a blanket as well that we haven't discussed yet. Um, no, honestly, at this point, like it's just a lot of first game questions that I have. And I think we covered most of those questions. Like a lot of the stuff we've discussed, I need to see it happen for another game or two before I really have some more formulated thoughts. Who do you think is going to win the series now that you No, I'm totally kidding. I'm just... <laughs> I'll happily answer that question, Ben. I'll put it out in the record. You don't want to put it out there. Okay. You don't want to put I it won't. out there. Just let it. Did you have a pick before the series? I don't know if we ever talked about this. I did have a pick before the series, actually. And what was that? Pick? I thought the Warriors would run it in six. Um, okay. So does that mean, help me understand like what that means. I, I can never wrap my head around, like it's hard enough to pick the specific series outcome. Then people double down and they're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get the exact number of games as well. Does that mean you think it's a very close series? And they, well, hold on. Game six is in Boston. So, so do you think Golden State was much better heading into the series? Like, what does that mean? Okay, so he, when when I pick seven games, that just means I think it's a complete coin flip. That's my way of hedging and being like, yeah, who knows I if see. I'm wrong. This was my way of saying I think Golden State actually has a slight edge in talent, and I've just been really impressed with watching them in the previous series. So, got it. Yeah. Okay. So the only other question that I'll ask is, have you changed your mind at all? Nope. Since watching Game One. Nope. I have not. I actually, I actually walked away being more impressed with Golden State. Honestly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. If you uh, want to support this show, head over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. There's extra content over there. Uh, We will have proprietary stats continuing to update throughout the rest of the playoffs and more. Remember to check out Sports Business Classroom. 
com. Enter the promo code Thinking Basketball if you sign up for one of the packages there and get $300 off. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed game one. If you're listening to this after game two, I hope you enjoyed game two even more. We'll be back at some point with an episode to cover that game. And wherever you are listening from, thanks as always for listening all the way to the end. And I hope you are having a great day.